Today we're going to talk about Canto 7 through 12. Probably we'll get mostly through Canto 10 or so, not through 12, but we always have big aspirations in this class. We're going to enter the purgatory, pride, and the purpose of art, part one. That's the name of the lecture. But first, let's start with Canto 6 a little bit and talk, and we'll review prayer, sordello, and the beginning of the ascent. So recall this. Dante ribs Virgil a little bit at the beginning of the purgatorio by suggesting, hey, in your work in, uh, in the Aeneid, when you had your character Aeneas talking to Sybil, it seemed like you suggested that prayer had no effect on the immortal gods, as if it could do nothing to convince the gods to change their opinions. Whereas in the Purgatorio, it happens to be the idea that when you pray, because of the love that you give to somebody, that is direct evidence of the justice of the divine, indicating that the justice of the divine is actually proved best by human love for other humans, which I think is a fascinating claim to make. And so Dante is showing now that he disagrees with Virgil on some point of contention. And if you recall the point of our seminar, is the point of seminar that I simply lecture to you and that you never are capable of generating your own thoughts yourselves? Obviously the answer is no. As you more and more become someone capable of wielding the sword of your intellect in a public space like a seminar, you will become less and less the student and more and more the what? The teacher. Or, and if you're a teacher and I'm a teacher, I'm no longer your teacher, but rather your what? What would you call someone who is of the same rank or status or job as you? Yes, colleague. That's right. And so as Dante goes up this mountain and removes more and more impediments from his will so that more and more of his shining intellect like the sun will rise and manifest itself in the world, you'll become less the student and more the master, which will be very important because can you guess what will happen at the end of the purgatory, at the very top, at the Garden of Eden? Virgil will have to leave us. Virgil will have to leave us because, well, if Virgil is the master in a disembodied form, what must Dante do by the end of this these three nights of the Purgatorio. What must he do with the disembodied spirit of the master in order to bring the master or mastery back into the world? He must embody it. Embody it. Very good. Very good, very good, very good, very good. All right, something else to note about the Purgatorio. Unlike in the Inferno where it was obvious where the next gate was to the next circle, often marked out by some horrific boss-like creature like Plutus, the god of wealth, or, uh, or Charon uh, guiding us across the, the waters, or Phlegias doing the same thing, or who else am I thinking of here? Uh, Cerberus, or the fallen angels, or the giants, or Gerion, or the Malabranche. We had several different sorts of guardians of the gates, and the gates were obvious. Not so with the Purgatorio. That's very interesting. Because what you're doing, what the action of the Purgatorio is, is dual. A, during the day, it's essentially like you're working out as hard as possible uh, in a very painful way in, on most of the cornices. In fact, the first cornice, uh, Pride, you'll be bent over in half with a giant stone on your back, struggling as hard as possible to move up the mountain. And so this seems to be a metaphor for how hard it is to develop skill in any domain, whether you be learning a sport, whether you be developing endurance for a race, whether you be developing strength 
on a strength training protocol, whether you be learning a language, whether you be getting good at a video game or getting good at relating to your peers as a friend, or now at this great age, a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Hmm. What the notion of the purgatorio seems to be is that, hmm, whenever you engage on a course of study or action, you must have faith that what you're doing will manifest results over time. Because think about it. The biggest things that you accomplish in life, like say, if you're overweight and you lose 50 pounds, do you do that overnight? No, you do that over many nights, right? So A, you have to have discipline. You have to stick with something. But what is the best way to have discipline in any endeavor? Well, Dante's claim, which I think is a true claim, is that you have to have faith that what you're doing, A, matters, and B, works, right? Because if I'm going to be on a painful diet in order to lose weight, what does it have to do for me in order for me to keep doing it? It has to work. That's right. If I'm going to give up eating Cheetos and drinking Pepsi every night and drink water and go painfully work out at a gym where I'm very embarrassed and wearing uncomfortable clothes, well, then I, that better be for something. And that seems to be the whole idea behind purgatory. In fact, if you wanted a large idea of the purgatorio, I would say, and this is my hypothesis, that it is a story about how humans get better at doing things. <laughs> in the most general possible way. Okay, good. Good, 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 good. So, so we meet Sordello. Sordello is a very interesting character. He is described like a lion, so he's proud. He's like Mufasa from The Lion King. He reminds us some of Capenius and Farinata from the Inferno in all of his pride. And so interesting, too, is that he, of course, stands out from his peers because he is proud, whereas so many are, 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 are humbled by life. And so... He, he, with his great proud disdain, rather than criticizing himself, criticizes the place that he comes from. And that seems to be, in general, the Italian peninsula, so full of sin, as we know from Florence and Tuscany, and, well, now uh, Mantua as well. And so something very interesting about Sordello and something interesting, I think, about the psychology of man is that though he finds the place that he comes from, Mantua, so disreputable, and perhaps you've said the same thing about the place that you come from, if it happens to be Escondido, uh, when he meets a, an actual countryman from that place, Virgil, he's very excited. He's very happy to see him, which is odd, because you would not expect that reaction, right? If he's talking about how Mantua is a den of vipers, a place of ultimate sin and where the people are decadent and avaricious and proud, you wouldn't expect him to meet someone from Mantua and then be very happy to see him, and yet... That, I think, shows something about the, sort of the contrast between how you can see a people and how you can see people. In fact, in America right now, and you know this because this is one of our election days, <clears throat> it's very often the case that one party, the Guelphs, will say that the Ghibellines are evil, or the Ghibellines will say that the Guelphs are evil, or we hear that the Guelphs are going to split into two parties, and you, know, you can perfectly map that situation onto our political situation right now. Um, there were many people who believed that during the last presidential campaign that the Republican Party would split two, and then it became stronger than it, it has been in many years, which is, is funny. It tells you, A, about our ability to tell the future, and B, about sort of the cycles of time and how people develop in-groups and fight for in-groups. But th that all goes to say, you might be like, I hate all of the conservative 
group, and I love all the liberal group, and then your best friend might be a part of that group, and you might love them all the same. And uh, that, that's definitely something that happens all the time. There are many uh, people who find love with someone who is either A, a different, say, faith than they are, or B, a different uh, political party. Though Thanksgiving is always fun then, and that is coming up. All right, so, Sordello says of his city, it is not a mistress of provinces, but a brothel. This is going to be imagery that we see multiple times throughout the Purgatorio. In fact, it's often not only going to be uh, um, applied to a secular place, Florence, it's going to be applied to the church as well. And so what is the idea of a brothel? Well, that's where prostitutes are. And what's a prostitute? It's a woman who sells, essentially, licentious behavior for money. Oh, well, what does that mean for a city or for a church? That they must sell their services for money. Well, of all the things that exist in the world, what is not supposed to be liable to corruption through bribery? A, your political system, because you have to trust it because it protects you, often because it has the power of the purse and the power of the sword, which means it can put you to the sword if something like the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution or the <laughs> Maoist Revolution were to happen. Um, but also the religious faith. If the point of the medieval Catholic Church was to take care of your soul and you work your whole miserable peasant life in order to go to heaven, what is it you guaranteed want when you die? To go to heaven. You want the output. You want the product from all of your work. It may, I mean, it's interesting because you might say, Mr. Schmidt, that makes Christianity sound rather capitalist. And I'm saying, well, with that view, it certainly is, right? You do a bunch of good things, and then you get a nice bonus at the end, a nice reward. It's like, yes, unless the true capitalism is enjoying the work itself, and perhaps that's what the best life can be. <laughs> you have to think about that yourself, though. All right. Bang. Since we are in paper writing season, it is a good thing that we got to Sordello because he is the very first person. So if you're looking for quotes, this is a good place to look. Canto 6, lines 52 to 54. He gives just a very brief mention of the fact that there is day and night in purgatory. And now this makes perfect sense to me now, given the setup before. We know that the idea behind purgatory is that you burn away your sins or your hindrances or your impediments or the errors that hinder your will and keep you from fully expressing yourself or accomplishing your goals. So, day and night, we talked about this. Your biggest goals in life you don't just accomplish in one day, in one night. You need far more discipline, and you need far more faith in the process than that requires. And so why would day and night be present in the purgatory? I understand. If the purgatorio is a place by which you enact the ultimate transformation a human can enact, which is to go from uneducated to educated, from enslaved to free, from a hindrance to oneself to a free mover in the world capable of one's own decisions, then the fact that there is day and night and day transforms into night seems to be a metaphor, a physical metaphor from the place itself that this is a place that transforms you, just like the world transforms itself. And in fact, who makes day transform into night? Well, we know, physically speaking, 
No one, right? The forces of gravity. Well, that's perfect. That means that day transitions into night itself. Well, that's an excellent metaphor for purgatory because who transforms you from uneducated into educated, from slave to free? Yourself. Yourself. That's right. Exactly. There is no external authority. It's just like when Harry Potter in the third book thinks that his father casts a Patronus. He thinks, oh, what a powerful wizard that must have done that. And he feels all this pride in the father, which is funny because it actually ends up being who? Himself. And do you take, would you take even more pride in the fact that you were the powerful wizard who cast the Patronus, not your father? And I think that that is part of the idea behind the purgatory. You don't need to be waiting around like Velacqua at the bottom of the purgatorial mountain for somebody to give you permission to improve at something. You just need to do it. And then you will. Excellent. All right. Let's talk about Cantos 8 and 9, the angel and the serpent. So we have metaphors that abound today about what the purgatorial process is. We're going to see these three steps. They mean the purgatorial process. We're going to talk about uh, Dante washing his face. That's part of the purgatorial process. We're going to talk about a serpent not getting in through the gates. That's a metaphor for the purgatorial process. By the end of the day, I want you to be able to tell me what the purgatorial process is in four different metaphors and just in regular articulated specific speech. All right, let's talk about this. So, a drama unfolds, Canto 8, uh, essentially between lines 19 and 108. There are little parts between it. And so what happens? Well, we see two angels. And we see one serpent that keeps licking its back. It's very interesting that it licks its back for two reasons. A, when it licks its back, it forms a circle. That's a very famous mythological image called the Ouroboros, where the snake eats itself. It is an image for how nature is self-sustaining and self-consuming. In fact, you as a conscious being will have to deal with this fact because you have been generated by nature, which is wonderful. What lies at the end of your life, however? Death, which means nature will eat you back up, which is actually why we bury you in the ground, which means that the ground has what did you? Eaten you. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And we willingly put you in the ground to show that you willingly gave your life for, say, your people or for the world. And so you willingly allowed yourself to be eaten. I would say that that's a very similar image to the idea of the cross. The willful person who puts himself on a tree, which is, again, another natural image or a piece of wood, and gives himself up for something greater. Very similar idea. All right, good. The other reason why this serpent licks its back is that it represents the opposite of having faith. I want you to think about this for a second. I want you all to pause for a moment. I'll give you 10 seconds. You don't need to find the answer, but I want you to think about this. If part of the idea behind purgatory is that you are improving yourself over time in a very strenuous way, which requires maximal faith in the project, what would it mean for a snake, which is not allowed in there, to be turning its back constantly and licking itself. What would that mean is not allowed and is not helpful in the purgatory? You might say it's the thing that eats away at faith or at trust. Yes? That's exactly right. Doubt. Exactly. When you're constantly turning your head back, thinking, think about that. Think about walking down a trail. What does it mean? What are you saying if you're constantly looking backwards? I guess, A, you could be nervous because Ralph, that weird kid, is back there, and you don't like Ralph. Ralph's just a made-up character. Uh, <laughs> but 
If you're constantly looking backwards, what does that indicate that you are thinking? Either something bad is going to happen or that you should turn back because you doubt the way forward. That is absolutely something you cannot do in the purgatory. It is simply too hard not to give it your best. And I would say, if you were to say, Mr. Schmidt, is, do you think that's what life is? I would say, yes, you should compete against other humans, not bears, not dolphins. You could beat them across several domains. They don't even have hands. Uh, it's true. They can't open doorknobs. I mean, maybe one could break down most doors. Not a dolphin. doesn't do so well on the air or, excuse me, outside of the water, even though it can breathe air. Um, the thing is, life is very difficult. And that is the idea behind this. And you compete against other humans, and they don't always like you. As we know from Dante and the fact that he's been exiled. And the fact that when you study history, mostly you study diseases, wars, and, uh, yeah, diseases and wars are the biggest part. Sometimes you see some art, too. Often it represents diseases and wars. In fact, even in on the Shield of Achilles, we saw a war, we saw a murder, um, and we did see uh, a harvest. We did see a harvest. It wasn't a famine, but it, it sure could have been. All right. These angels. Two angels show up to fight against the serpent. It took me a long time to figure out why there are two angels. This is something I want you to know. In the Purgatorio, you are developing A, your intellect, and B, your will. Your intellect allows you to see and develop goals, intangible goals, right? Because you see with your mind's eye. That's how you see a goal, isn't that right? Like, where does a goal exist? In your head, right? But then you can manifest it in reality. Well, how is it that you get to these goals? Well, you have to have a free will. Because then you can actively choose to pursue that which you see by the light of your consciousness. And so, what is it that expels error and doubt from the purgatorio? Your own thinking and your own will. So, what expels sin or error from your own life? Your own thinking and your own willpower. Again, we're coming back to the same notion in different ways. And so, these angels are weird angels. Why are they weird? Well, they have shiny white faces. They're so bright, you can't even see them. You cannot comprehend their faces. So you try and look at their faces, and it's like zap when you look at the sun. Everybody knows that feeling. You look at the sun, you have those little purple blobs in your eyes, and you're like, oh, that's really weird. Everybody's done that before? Maybe just me? Okay, good. Uh, they have green wings. We don't generally think of angels as having green wings. You've all seen like pictures of angels, right? Like, usually like some long, blonde-haired, sort of androgynous person with like a gown thing on, and like golden or white. Uh, feathered wings, whereas like the devil often has like goat feet and bat-like wings, um, indicating that's more reptilian, less mammalian, less familiar to us. We don't like it as much, even though bats are obviously mammals. Um, are they mammals? Yeah, I think so. They're like winged rat mammals. Good, 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 good. Well, these angels have green wings. They have red flaming swords, very like the cherub, very similar to the cherubim that are put outside of Eden after the fall of man. And they have shining white faces. And so, this, these are three concepts that you do need to know. They are these. Each of those colors signifies one of the theological virtues. In fact, if you think about red, green, and white, there are some very famous flags that we have to this day that are red, green, green and white. I'm thinking of two of them that you probably know. Yes. The Mexican flag. Exactly. And that actually has an eagle and a snake. We're going to be talking about eagles and snakes today. Yes. 
and the Italian flag. That's exactly right. If you were to say, Mr. Schmidt, does the Italian flag have red, green, and white as its uh, colors because of its Catholic heritage and its relation to Dante? And I would say, duh, obviously. Yeah, exactly right. Very good. Very good. Yes, so red, red theologically does not mean violence, as you would expect. It means charity, which means love, which actually means sort of like an act of self-violence. Think about the idea of like a crucifix and a dying person bleeding on it. Well, the idea of love, or at least the old Christian idea of love, seems to be that you best show love by self-sacrifice. And, well, if we're looking for the proof of something, if somebody sacrifices themselves for you, have they proved how they feel for you and that they actually think you have value? The answer seems clearly to be, Yes, yes. What more can you sacrifice? I barely like to give my time to anybody else. The fact that I give, like, pain to someone else or my life, uh, hard to even conceive. It's so incredible. Green means hope. Why does green mean hope? Well, for the same reason that Easter is in spring. Because hope springs back eternally and always returns to the world, no matter what. Well, that's a beautiful idea. And white indicates faith or trust because white is pure. And so is the trust between you and someone else. And though we will find out in the Paradiso that that trust can be besmirched a bit, just sort of like the craters on the moon, the dark spots on the moon. And, well, you know, we are humans, and if even, like, say, the first pope betrayed his good friend, who was a divine human three times before, you know, the cock crowed one day, which means before even the sun rose, then maybe we can cut ourselves a little bit of slack because... Well, most people haven't been perfect ever. All right. So, the snake, which is licking its own back, tries to get in the purgatory. Nope. It gets chased away by the angels. This is a replay of the Garden of Eden event where the humans, now having listened to the snake, are chased out of Eden by cherubims with red swords, with flaming swords. Well, what does this mean? If the snake means error or sin... And the angels are the will and the intellect of man, and they keep the snake or doubts or sin out of purgatory. This must also be a metaphor for what you do in the purgatory. You extract or expiate or expurgate that which is error-filled in yourself, behaviors and beliefs and ideas, perhaps, and you replace them with the conscious light of the intellect. You replace your old bad habits and ways of thinking with new good, more effective ways of thinking. And in fact, I would say that I think you are always doing that as a human because you are always filled with behavioral patterns from the past. Do your behaviorals from, behavioral patterns from the past, say when you were five years old and mom would do everything for you, always help you when you are now 15 years old? No. So do you always have to be editing and improving yourself to manifest the best version of yourself in a new situation? Yes, you have to always be changing like the water in a river. And that seems to be the point that's made here. All right, great, excellent. Let's talk about a dream. We'll do some dream analysis here. And the dream is a very creepy dream that I was talking about before we started lecture today. And actually, that's a very beautiful picture that we have up there. Everybody knows that, that from that sort of cartoonish style is William Blake. Again, it's a light blue. And you can sort of see Dante being 
taken up by a buxom figure, which indicates a feminine figure, which means Saint Lucia. It's like the light. Saint Lucy means saint of light or consciousness is drawing him up the mountain while Virgil doesn't leave him but follows him. And so let's think about this dream. We will see three nights in the Purgatorio. We will see three dreams, very like the Christmas carol, where we will see three spirits this night. Okay, so during the first of these three dreams, and this occurs Canto 9, lines 19 to 39, Dante is transported by Saint Lucia, Lucy, her name means light, like Lucy there, from one location to the entrance to the first terrace of pride. So he is unconsciously taken up to the first terrace. So he gets there without knowing how he gets there. And I would also say that that is part of learning, especially learning a procedural ability, like how to throw a new pitch as a baseball player, or how to throw a new throw as an ultimate frisbee player. You're just kind of messing around, you're practicing, 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 and then click. All of a sudden you can do it. Can you explain how you can do it? Generally, no. But can you do it? Yes. Is that what this dream means? That sometimes when you are attempting to progress along a certain endeavor, you improve without knowing how. Well, do you know how you learn? Probably not. Do you still learn things every now and then? Yes, yes, of course. And so do you have to know how you do something in order to be able to do it? Not always. In fact, I would say almost everything that you know how to do, you could not explain how you do it. And if you think, that's dumb, Mr. Schmidt, I'll say this. Test yourself. Explain to me or to someone else how you tie your shoe just by using words, not using your hands. Give someone directions to a place without using your hands. Dictate how it is that you put pants on. It's like you take your foot and then you raise it off the ground, no, your left foot, and then you stick it in through the hole, no, not that hole, this hole, no, this part of the hole, and then you put it down the jeans, no, 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 you're caught on it, now you have to move it down here, now you gotta kinda pull it up and then take your other foot, no, no, you need to put the first foot down. It'd be pretty hard, right? Right. You're like, now I see why people used to wear togas and stuff. It'd be a lot easier to describe how to put that on. Put it over your head. Should be the right side up. <laughs> Okay, so, the dream of Ganymede. Dante has a very powerful dream, and it is a dream about a very powerful part of Roman and Greek mythology. It is the dream of the abduction by Ganymede, a Trojan prince, by Zeus and uh, Jupiter. And so you remember that the reason that Ganymede was first abducted was because of his great beauty as a young man, and often it would be the case that young, beautiful humans had uh, terrible fates in Greek mythology. We know this about Helen. We know this uh, about Orion, though it was because of his uh, hunting prowess. We know this about Endymion, who the moon loved. Often if you were too beautiful or too gifted in some endeavor, the gods would take you away. And so it was with Ganymede. Because of his beauty, Zeus spirited him up to... Olympus, where he became the cupbearer to the gods. Ah. We begin to understand what this means. Because did Dante choose to go up to heaven, or is he chosen by Mary Beatrice St. Lucy and apparently fate slash God? He seems to be chosen, not to be choosing himself. 
And is he rising up the purgatorio due to his own merit, due to his own expiation of sin, or because he is fated to go up and see what is there? Ah. And so it is as if he is being unconsciously or by the force of another's will brought up the purgatorio so that, well, and here's the difference, unlike Ganymede, who simply pours the nectar of the gods to the gods, it seems as if what Dante is going to be doing in a non-pagan and Christian way is going up to the heavens, taking the nectar, and then pouring it for whom? Himself. Himself, perhaps, but if you write a book, is it just for you? Who is it for? For everybody else. That's right, and that seems to be the idea not only behind acquiring skill, but ascending purgatory for Dante. The higher level of skill you have, the better a product you can produce to share with somebody. And that strikes me as very good, very good. And so, one additional aspect of this story that is only present in Dante, not in the original Ovidian account. He is carried into fire by eagle, by the eagle. And you're like, why is he taken into the fire? But then you remember the word purge and the word purgatory come from the word pyre, which means fire. Well, that seems to be that in order to become the cupbearer to the gods, you have to first purge away the mortal parts of yourself, the error-ridden parts, the mistake-ridden parts, the inefficient parts, the parts that no longer help you, the childish parts. You must put away the things of youth, as it were. When you were a child, you spoke as a child, but now you must speak as a man. Those are a couple of quotes, I believe, from the New Testament, uh, one from Paul, maybe both. Uh, and so, this is very similar to when Achilleus, as we know the story, not from the Iliad, but the story around the Iliad, had his mortal parts burned away by his mother. And I'll tell you what that means. Do we still talk about him even though he's dead? Does that mean his mortal parts have been burned away? What is the immortal part of you there for? Your? Legacy. Your legacy, your story. That's right, the things that you did and how they fit <laughs> together. That's brilliant. You're very brilliant students. All right, good, 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 good. The Angel of the Terrace of the Purgatory. We only have a couple minutes, so I am just going to go uh, very quickly through this. This will be our last slide of the day. And I apologize for not getting through more. I will give you more either tomorrow or the next day. So we start Canto 9, lines 76 to 132 with a piece of apostrophe. Reader, you see how my subject becomes more elevated. Do not wonder if it is therefore presented with more art. So we get to the gate. We're moved by St. Lucy during the time that Dante is giving the dream to the front of the Purgatorio. At that gate, there is a, an angel, and he'll put seven peas on our forehead, and we'll start talking tomorrow and the next day about that. This angel, and we should all be writing this, is sitting on a pedestal above three steps. Each one of the steps appears very different from the others, indicating that they are like steps in a process. And so the first step is smooth, white marble, and one can see one's own reflection. Well, that's easy to interpret, especially within the context of the purgatorio. Reflection, or recognition of one's own errors, one's ability to see oneself clearly is necessary for the purgatorio. In fact, we'll find out that that is why pride is the foundation of all sin. 
as it is a sickness of the mind which keeps one from seeing oneself in the world clearly. The second step is dark purple with cracks. Well, that makes sense. It's like a crack in your consciousness or in your worldview of yourself. The contrition aspect of a conversion. As in, after you realize the terrible things you've done, you get the weight of the feeling that comes with that as an ethical or moral being. You crack up. Not in the happy, funny way, but in sort of the sad, oh my gosh, I'm coming apart at the seams way. And then the third step, red is blood, is satisfaction. The work that you put in in order to change yourself from the cracked, disunified creature into a unified one. And well, we'll pick up where we left off tomorrow.